It's very rare in the life of our church that we take a break for a moment from the expository regular preaching of the word in order to address an issue. But at this moment in our cultural life together, we need to do just that as a church. And with a heavy heart, it's my task as one of your pastors to do this today. But I also do this with hope because the word of God is powerful, living and active. It's sufficient and it holds out to us the true hope of humanity in every circumstance, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we gather in corporate worship online right now, we're not simply living through a pandemic with all of the social, spiritual, and economic impacts that go along with that. No, we're also living in the midst of a nation unsettled, with civic and social unrest sparked most recently by the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Rashad Brooks. Black Lives Matter protests this month have garnered international attention and violent rioting and looting have shamefully cast a shadow over honest conversations about important matters of race, policing, and the nature of our nation's civic life. As several blocks of Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood, just a couple of hours down the street from us, have been overtaken and declared autonomous by activists, we're hearing all over the country cries that police forces from coast to coast be defunded and dismantled. In the midst of this, the church is far from united. As the world watches, brothers and sisters in Christ are arguing with one another. There are also conversations that are taking place in person and on social media that are basically at the root, worldview exchanges. That is, our theology is playing out in the way that we speak with one another about these things, in the way that we form opinions about what's wrong, why it's wrong, and what to do to make things better. At its best, these conversations are intentional, civil, and loving, even in the midst of disagreement. But far too often they are argumentation that does not do anything to show the world the love of Jesus among his people. To be clear up front, we unequivocally call evil what it is. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12 that we are to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. So let me speak plainly. George Floyd's treatment at the hands of police officers was unjust, reprehensible, and wicked. It was inexcusable. It is evil for any person anywhere to be demeaned, dehumanized, or unjustly treated by anyone, period. Every person who harbors prejudice toward others in his heart is guilty of real sin and must repent. Whether a person is black, white, Asian, Latino, or any other ethnicity, prejudice toward others is offensive to the Holy One. Sadly, across our nation, People are victims of exactly this kind of prejudice, suspicion, and harassment daily. Lawless rioting and violent destruction of personal or public property is wicked. So are the failures of families, governments, churches, and personal rebellion that set the table for this banquet of rancid fruit. And finally, it's harmful to the church and to the world when Christians are swept up in ungodly solutions and cultural narratives that have more to do with identity politics than with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, we are Christians. We belong to Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. 
he rules us by his word. And his will for us, each one of us who belong to him, is to engage not only in this moment, but in every moment from a biblical worldview, looking to his word not just for proof texts, but for the truth that would help us think clearly at such a time as this. As we do this, we will live more faithfully and we will love more robustly and more deeply than ever possible apart from that. To this end, I would invite you to open scripture with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 28 and 29 and then skip over to chapter 2 for just a moment. The Apostle Paul, speaking of Jesus, says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And then in chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily." See, the church at Colossae was facing an influx of false teachers and unbiblical ideas, and this is what prompted Paul to write this letter. He was trying to strengthen the church against false teachers who were trying to bind the consciences of believers, telling them that in order to be acceptable before God, they needed to do certain things that God had, in fact, not required them to do. He says in verse 28 of chapter 1 that at the center of his message is Christ, him we proclaim. His goal was that by proclaiming Christ in his fullness, the church, down to the believer level, every single one of the church members would become mature. And in chapter 2, verse 6, he exhorts the Christians to remember the Lord whom they received. They began with Christ through the gospel. They were to continue with Christ in the gospel. They were sunk deep as roots into Christ, and they were to be built up on Christ alone. This, too, is the call for every believer in our day. And so Paul's concern for them is his concern for us, that they would not be taken away by ungodly ideas. So in verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. That word heading verse 8, see, is a word of warning. He's telling them, be alert, be on guard, because they were being taken captive. The church was being pillaged by spiritual thieves, as it were, and the Christians were being taken as the plunder of this kind of piracy, this piracy that was happening at the level of their thoughts, with philosophies and worldly systems and empty deceits that were at root unchristian. And when Paul talks about philosophy, he's not condemning the study of philosophy as we know it, but he's talking about any worldview that comes with its own beliefs and ideas and truth claims that are not grounded in the truth of who God is for us in Jesus Christ. 
This is the human tradition that declares truth apart from God with no reference to Christ, and ultimately it undermines the gospel. Brothers and sisters, see to it. Be on guard that no one takes you captive. If you're paying attention to what's going on around you, then you're hearing people come to you in the name of Christ and telling you to believe things that are untrue. They're telling you that if you are going to do what God would have you do, that you need to embrace a narrative and an ideology that has no rooting in the pages of Scripture. And that if you don't agree with these things, you must not love your neighbor and you've betrayed the heart of Christ. Frankly, many Christians are being caught up in human tradition and contemporary philosophy that's dangerous to the root, and it's showing it in the fruit. We're going to go to the scriptures now to sort through some of this. Particularly, we're going to be looking briefly at the police. We're going to be looking at race. We're going to look at the Black Lives Matter movement, and then finally, the mission of the church. I come with fear and trembling this morning. Because I fear, I anticipate, that some will misunderstand me and accuse me of being insensitive, of focusing on facts and truth when I should be grieving. Truly, I hope that is not the case. I hope that no one assumes that because I'm focusing right now on truth that therefore I am not grieved, I am. But to anyone who would say that, I would ask you to consider that grieving without truth is false grief and that failing to think biblically in the midst of sorrow is a dangerous invitation to deception. So in the spirit of speaking truth and love, would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in submission, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. In Romans 1 through 11, the Apostle Paul delves deep into the gospel, unpacking the glory of Christ and God's saving love for sinners who deserve his wrath. He made it clear that each of us deserves condemnation, but that in love, God the Father sent his Son to bear the full weight of God's wrath against our sins who believe on his Son at the cross. He shows that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus has made a full end of all their sins, declaring it finished. And Paul turns the corner into Romans 12 where he begins to apply the gospel to the lives of the saints. And he says in chapter 12 that believers have no business seeking personal vengeance when they are wronged. They are to trust God and leave it to his wrath because he sees his justice is real and he will leave no wrong unredressed. And then here in chapter 13, he shows how 
even in this life, this side of heaven, God's justice and God's wrath is meant to hold sway. And that through the government. He says that we are to be subject to the governing authorities, to submit with willing hearts so long as doing so does not require us to disobey what God commands. And more than this, we're told that each governing authority is ordained by God. This is why Jesus told Pontius Pilate, as Pilate was holding his authority over Jesus' head, as it were, Jesus said, if authority was not given to you by God, then you would have no authority. See, we may cast our votes every two and four years, but we're simply voting into reality what God has eternally ordained. This applies for government positions that are not simply voted, but hired. That would include the police. Paul says that those who do not submit to these authorities will incur judgment. And I think he specifically includes here the judgment of the law being brought down on their heads. And so lawbreakers get penalties. And sometimes, depending on how severe the lawbreaking is, severe penalties. When governments and municipalities govern with goodness, truth, and justice, this is a beautiful thing. When they govern unjustly, this is fearsome. And yet all of it is under the purview of God's sovereignty and design. And his call is that they would be doing good. That's why they are there. In fact, in verse 4, he says that government is God's servant for our good. Government officials are God's servants for good. And his will is that they would serve their citizens and promote good. That they would be just. That they would put a hedge of protection around law-abiding citizens to protect them from evildoers. The hedge of protection here is called the sword in chapter 4, which the apostle says they do not bear in vain. This is the use of reasonable force, not, not brutality, but reasonable force for the good of a city, state, and nation. This is the executive branch of our government. This is the police. You see, the biblical passages pertaining to, to government are very limited in scope. There's not much data there, which is one reason why a biblical worldview of government is going to heavily lean toward a limited government. But the important thing to see at this moment is that squarely in the center of God's appointed function of government is the police department. The police are God's gift of common grace in a world filled with sin. Their calling is to restrain and punish evil and to protect and promote good. This is what they are for. Now that being said, every police department is made up of the very same kinds of people that every church is made up of, that every Boy Scout troop is made up of, that every civil rights organization is made up of, and that is sinners. Every police department is made up of sinners. Thankfully, in our nation, everyone in the executive branch, from the small town sheriff up to the president of the United States, is under the rule of law. No one is above the law in any branch of government. And of course, this does not mean that excessive force is never used in policing, as we've seen. And it doesn't ensure that justice is always carried out or that politicians never get away with criminal conduct. But it does mean that on the whole, we live in a nation where police can and should be held accountable who abuse their authority and harm the people they're supposed to protect. And as we're able, we should work to make it less possible for brutal tactics to be used with impunity. 
At the same time, for the past several years, we've seen the widespread demonizing of the police in our nation. We've regularly seen on the nightly news this narrative that police brutality and racial discrimination are standard operating procedure on the streets of American cities as a whole. In fact, the Black Lives Matter movement was founded on the story that police are systematically hunting black Americans down on the street, which to be honest is not at all a proven fact, nor a conclusion that's universally accepted even by black Americans. And right now we're seeing a mass wave of protesters demanding that police departments across the nation be defunded and dismantled. I'm talking to the church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, read Romans 13 again. It is utter folly to defund and disband what God ordained for our good. For some, the call to disband police is a response born out of real pain. And this pain needs to be acknowledged with true empathy and compassion, and justice must be sought where we can. Police reform where it is needed is good and should be pursued. Police certainly haven't gotten it right all the time, and friends, neither has the church. And yet abolition of police departments is not pleasing to God, and no Christian should ever accept that as a viable option moving forward. Nor should we be anywhere near the demeaning rhetoric that's used against police. You see, as Christians, we should neither uncritically defend the police as if there were no departments made up of sinners, nor should we demonize the police as if most were dirty cops looking to do harm behind the shield of a badge. Rather, we should engage our police, pray for our police, respect our police, and speak honestly about our police. I believe that by and large, public safety officers are self-sacrificing people who are devoted to keeping law and order and doing good. I recognize that there's massive pain in our nation. This pain runs deep and was sparked most recently by the violent and dehumanizing mistreatment of two black men at the hands of white men. As we all know, the national conversation, and in many ways the international conversation right now, is focused on racial issues. And that conversation has moved in several directions, including the claim that our whole nation is poised to systematically oppress black people and perpetrate racism, if not formally, then at least functionally. If that is true, it is a grave evil. And in the church, the phrases white privilege, social justice, reparations, and corporate guilt, among others, are commonplace as Christians debate what faithfulness looks like in our time. Next week, Pastor John is going to be addressing some of these things in more detail. But for now, I want to look at what the Bible teaches about race. Because before we can ever have clarity on racial issues, it's critically, that, it's critically important that we have a basic biblical theology on what the Bible teaches about race to begin with. So what is the truth about who we are, where we come from, our skin color, and where we're headed? As we answer that question, I would invite you to open to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be reading in verses 24 through 27. The Apostle Paul is here in Athens, standing before the cultural elites of his day at the Areopagus. 
And he's, uh, he's taking the opportunity, as I hope anybody would in his situation who's a believer, to preach the gospel. So beginning in verse 24, he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. So the first thing we see is that all life comes from God. He made all things. He is Lord of heaven and earth, and he benevolently gives to every person, no matter where they're from, ethnically, geographically, their background, their socioeconomic status. He gives to all things, to all people, everything, life and breath, everything. He is the giver. And we see exactly how we came to have the different peoples of the world that we have today, skin color included. In verse 26, he says that God made from one man every nation of mankind spread out over the whole earth. So every person comes from God and are descended from one man, from Adam. Humanity began in the Garden of Eden and spread out from there. And so every person of every ethnicity in every part of the world is nevertheless, for all their diversity, of common descent, part of the human family. And so when Paul says that God made from one man every nation, that word for nation, he's using the Greek word ethnos, from which we get the English word ethnic. And the big idea here is this. There is one race. That's the human race. There is no black race or white race or Mexican race or Chinese race. There is one race, the human race, with every single member of that race equally and gloriously bearing the image of the God who made them. That is the truth. We talk about race issues, and that's fine. But if we're going to be as biblically accurate as possible, it might be better to refer to nations or tribes or peoples when it comes to talking about people with different geographical and cultural and ethnic backgrounds. In fact, the word race is only used four times in the English Standard Version, three times referring to the Jews, and once referring to believers as a chosen people in Jesus. So strictly speaking, we could say there are two races, the unredeemed race of Adam and the redeemed race in Jesus. But that's about as far as we could go with that word. In contemporary English, more often it's used as a social and cultural signal of division of people into various ethnic groups. And as often as not, it's inflammatory and implies division among people based on how much melanin they have in their skin. Now, ethnic distinctions aren't bad at all. In fact, ethnic distinctions are very heavenly. And what I mean is that they will span into eternity and are part of this very good human race that God created. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to get a glimpse of heaven. And to set the scene, the Lamb of God, Jesus, has come into the center of heaven's court and he is going to take, he has taken a scroll and now we see what he's going to do. Beginning in chapter 5 and verse 8 through 10, it says that when Jesus had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth, every tribe and people and nation. And then two chapters over in chapter 7, in verses 9 and 10, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All of the human race before the throne, all the redeemed, saved through Jesus one people of God with all their ethnic diversity. As we sang this morning in that great hymn, the church is one foundation. The redeemed are elect from every nation and yet one in Christ. And this is precisely the picture we see here around the throne. As the Apostle John uses the terms nations and tribes and peoples and languages to denote the entirety of the human race, emphasizing the global scope of the gospel and the union of the saints through Jesus Christ. So let's apply this to the sin that's commonly called racism. Again, we want to think as Christians, and this means taking every thought captive to obey Christ and his word, including how we think about racism. And so taking into consideration the biblical categories of nations and tribes and peoples and languages and considering how limited the use of the term race is in our English translations, we can more accurately say that what our culture calls racism, which even in our English language is a relatively recent term, this is actually something more like ethnic pride. Ethnic pride. And like all sin, it's a matter of the heart. And any person anywhere who harbors pride in his or her ethnicity over and against the culture and ethnicity of anybody else is guilty of sin and must repent and turn to Christ by faith. As with every sin, the answer to racism is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as sinners who come to God through faith in Jesus are forgiven, they are also sanctified. They are transformed and the ethnically proud old man is crucified with Christ, and the new man embracing as a brother everybody from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation in Jesus starts to take greater and greater hold as Jesus' image is formed. Two cautions need to be given. One is the often well-intentioned notion of colorblindness by which somebody who wants to steer far clear of any hint of racism says that they don't see the color of someone's skin. They simply want to love everybody. And while this sentiment is often admirable and the heart behind it is good, again, friends, we are Christians. Melanin was God's idea. He gave more to some and less to me. (laughs) And friends, that's all within God's will. God redeems all nations and peoples and skin colors. There's never a hint in the scriptures that any amount of melanin is better than any other, and it should not be part of our thinking in any way. In fact, all the nations with all the shades of melanin will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. That's how the story ends. So we should celebrate this magnificent tapestry that God has woven into the skin fabric of our human race. Friends, we don't need colorblindness. 
we need color celebration. On the other hand, the other warning is that there's a cultural narrative right now that says that if you're white, then you are inherently racist and there's nothing you can do about it. Based on the color of your skin and all the privilege that it brings with it in America, you are complicit in a racist society that systematically oppresses others. In the words of a well-known Christianity Today article that was recently published, the church has been complicit in this evil. And historically, friends, I just have to say, yes, Christians, various churches in this nation have been complicit in that evil and must repent. But to quote, an art, to, to quote the line of that Christianity Today article that stood out to me loud and clear, Repentance is not enough. And that's what we're being told, not just in some parts of the church, but by the culture at large, that repentance is not enough. Friend, let me speak plainly with you. Sin is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of your heart, and it's a matter of mine. We can sin together, and oftentimes throughout history, the church has sinned together. But if you believe you are guilty of a sin for which repentance is not enough, then you've left the boundaries of the gospel. There is no sin, including ethnic pride, for which true repentance and faith in Jesus are not enough. And as Christians, we absolutely must strive in the grace of Christ to love our neighbors as ourselves, regardless of their ethnicity or circumstances. Repentance for sin and justice toward all are biblical ideas, and they must be biblically defined. But please hear me. Love does not mean uncritically accepting sweeping accusations about supposed sins that are located outside of the human heart and for which you cannot repent. By the gospel, we are obligated to reject that thinking. So when you trace several of the ideas that you're being told to embrace in our culture right now, at large, you find at their root not a biblical foundation, but a social agenda that has more to do with theological liberalism and the philosophy of Karl Marx than it does to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters of every shade of brown, light to dark, and everything in between, you are precious in God's sight. And in Christ, we are oriented together around the gospel. Heed the words of the Apostle Paul as he talks to the Colossians. And in chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, he says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, In Christ, friend, there is neither Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. God is not intending here to deny ethnic distinctions, but he is absolutely saying that we as believers find our common union with Christ to be what defines us. And it is the grounds on which ethnic pride can be put to death in every form. This leads us to the need to briefly consider the Black Lives Matter movement. The organization Black Lives Matter is a part of a much larger network called the Movement for Black Lives. 
We'll see in a moment what that entails. But let me say from the outset that it is not primarily, it is not primarily about ethnic justice. Let me also ask you this. Objectively, without any baggage, do black lives matter? Absolutely and unequivocally, yes, period. In fact, let me joyfully affirm without hesitation what scripture teaches. Black lives more than matter. Black lives are precious. It is grievous to the heart what black Americans have endured throughout the centuries of American history. It is an inexcusable and grave evil. In our response to our history, we also cannot deny these other biblical truths that white lives are precious as well. Latino lives are precious. Yakima lives are precious. Unborn lives are precious. Down syndrome lives are precious. Old lives are precious. Female lives are precious. And male lives are precious. Every life matters to God and should matter to his people. Let me also ask you this. Answer honestly. Do you really think it's possible at this current moment in our culture to simply say those three words which I just affirmed as true objectively, black lives matter, and to not have that affiliated with the formal Black Lives Matter organization and movement? Do you think it's possible to black out your Instagram or your Facebook and not have people mentally associate that with that movement, regardless of what you think of it? I would suggest to you that is not possible. I personally think it is naive to think so. And I know that some will disagree, and that's okay. But as Christians, Whether we're black or white or anything in between, we must labor to treasure black lives on the one hand while taking pains to not in any way be linked, and I say this as your pastor with spiritual concern, to not in any way be linked with the formal Black Lives Matter movement on the other hand. Both of these things, taking pains to love our black neighbors and not be affiliated with the Black Lives Matter movement, are not only both possible, but they're necessary. And if you're concerned with biblical truth and with righteousness in the public square, let me tell you why you should have nothing to do with the Black Lives Matter movement, even as you labor to robustly love your neighbor as yourself. According to blacklivesmatter.com and the website for the movement for black lives, here are some of the fundamental commitments behind the political organization Black Lives Matter. This is what you're unwittingly aligning yourself with, even if you disavow these things. This is what you're unwittingly bringing up when you use a hashtag or blackout or simply say without any qualification, Black Lives Matter. A massive campaign to defund and abolish police departments, which we've already looked at basically from a biblical worldview. The creation of a military arm of the Black Lives Matter movement organization in New York to oppose police where they deem it necessary to do so with force. 
which in light of Romans 13 would be to usurp the power of the sword from the authorities to whom it's been entrusted by God in order to advance this organization's political agenda. Disruption of the biblical nuclear family structure of father, mother, children, and extended family. A disruption which, friends, tears apart the fabric of society that God ordained in the garden. A movement that seeks to dismantle the free market system of economics that reflects God's providence and the protection of private property. In this world that's groaning under the weight of sin, hear me now, there will be no perfect economic system because every economic system is populated with the same types of people who are populating police departments and churches, and that is sinners. But a free market system most fully embodies the principles and the commands of Scripture and historically has done more to elevate people out of poverty than any other economic system. Black Lives Matter, the movement, seeks to deconstruct the biblical norm of sexuality, championing and advancing the LGBTQA plus revolution, which is destroying society and searing consciences. And far from ushering in ethnic reconciliation, which can ultimately come only through the gospel, Black Lives Matter and Movement for Black Lives formally are driving a wedge of ethnic pride and prejudice deep into the heart of our nation and world. Aligning with Black Lives Matter is to align with Planned Parenthood and the murder of innocent children by abortion, which has cost over 19 million precious black lives in just 37 years. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Here in the first three chapters of Romans... The apostles making the case that the problem with humanity is that everyone, Jew and Gentile, we could include black and white and everybody, is radically depraved and condemned before God because of sin. Every single person needs the Savior. And in Romans 1, he explores specifically how people respond to God, even though he's given massive evidence for his nature and laws in all of creation. Listen to how the apostle in verses 18 through 32 describes people who reject him in exchange for idols, who reject the truth of God in exchange for lies, and then manifest their rebellion in stages, in perverted sexuality, in homosexuality, in depraved thinking that calls evil good and good evil. And based what I just read to you, which ideas were taken from the websites of these movements, I would suggest to you that the formal Black Lives Matter movement has turned what I'm about to read to you into a formal platform. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images 
resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Somebody will say that just reading this and declaring it to be true means that we are bigoted against people who fall into this category, but let me tell you that every single one of us, apart from the saving grace of Christ, is in that category. Every one of us. Redemption is through no one else but Jesus. Declaring these things to be sin, as God has declared them in his word, is simply to agree with God. It is not to condone prejudice. It is not to condone violence. It is not to condone the maltreatment or dehumanization of anybody who does any of these things. It is to say that we are all of us in need of a savior. God's settled indignation against sin has been revealed, friends. His divinity and his power and his glory are clearly displayed to everybody who has two eyes and half a brain. And yet we exchange these things for a lie and pervert everything in our path, which leads to a sexual revolution, and then to an LGBTQA plus revolution, and finally the warping of the mind until we celebrate evil and wage war on good. This is precisely what the Black Lives Matter movement does. So church, love your neighbor as yourself. Do good to all without partiality. Bear one another's burdens and speak against injustice and ditch all affiliation with Black Lives Matter while you live out the truth that black lives are precious. The brilliance of the organization is in the name because friends, how insane is it that we have to think twice as Christians before using three words that in and of themselves are objectively good, true, and beautiful? So where do we go from here? People of God, what are we to do? As we witness the upheaval of a nation and the pain of ethnic divisions, what do we do when confronted with narratives and accusations that claim truth and demand you bow the knee to ideologies that you know in your heart are anti-God at their core? How do you labor to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And how do we do that together? Church, remember your mandate. Remember your constitution, as it were. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All nations, every ethnicity, every people group, every shade of melanin, teach them to follow Jesus. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christian, the reason you are left on this earth is to be a gospel-proclaiming witness to the nations, and that begins with being a gospel-proclaiming witness in our nation and to all the nations represented in our nation. And as you do this and live a life that adorns that proclamation, you will be the salt that preserves our society from the ethnic and sexual and moral decays that are rotting our culture as we speak at an alarming rate. Don't buy into unbiblical ideas of social justice. Pastor John will preach more about this next Sunday. But remember whom you believe, the God who is the God of justice who says in Proverbs 28.5 that justice is placed squarely in the hearts of the redeemed. Evil men, it says, do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. As Christians, we understand that true justice for each of us with desperately wicked hearts is that we would get condemnation in hell forever for our rebellion against God. We know that true justice in our world would look like God's casting every person into hell But we also know that the justice due to our sins as believers was visited upon the shoulders of Jesus at the cross, our sin bearer, who made full satisfaction. And as Christians who are citizens of a constitutional republic, we can labor for righteousness between one another and advocate for just laws and for equity in society biblically defined while realizing that true hope for reconciliation and justice between people is ever only through the gospel. Because it is only in the gospel that hearts are changed. We are Christians. Our aim is to glorify God through Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. We are ruled by the Bible. We do not compromise with unrighteousness, but rather we pray deliver us from evil. And as we work for the good of our neighbors and the stewardship of our common civic life, we don't lose sight of the fact that while godless theories seek to take us captive, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And as Paul writes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to come up and grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And we pray, come Lord Jesus. Because when he does, he brings true justice and peace. Please pray with me. Oh, Prince of Peace and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit who makes new those for whom Christ died and reconciles us to God through him, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us as your redeemed people who nevertheless are weighed down with the weights of sin that clings so closely. Have mercy on us as we have oftentimes, even with good intentions, not taken every thought captive to obey you 
when oftentimes, intending perhaps to speak the truth, we have instead sowed seeds of division. Have mercy on us. Wherever we have hurt one another, wherever we have not done justice or loved kindness or walked humbly with you, have mercy upon us. And we thank you that we have hope that placing faith in Jesus and repenting of our sin and then doing that again tomorrow and the next day and all the way to glory, we will be walking with you who are the God of justice, who is the God of justice, who is the Prince of Peace. And we pray, Lord Jesus, come. Bring justice upon the earth. Justice as sinners repent of sin and believe in you and find redemption and who live as salt and light in our decaying culture and speak the truth in love and labor for what is good and true and beautiful. Guard us as your church from being taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies. Help us to trace the ideas all around us back to their root and to find the spirit that is within them. And may we reject all that does not bear the spirit of Jesus. And may we as your church Stay tethered to the gospel in this nation, and Sun Valley Church in particular here in our city. And as we do, may you draw the nations to the glory of your Son, who died for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and language, making of them a kingdom and priests to our God, who will one day reign with him on the earth. To you be the glory, O Lord. Amen.